The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Waiting on the Fed. Investors holding their breath for any signs of tightening with stocks at or near all-time highs. Bitcoin bouncing back after Elon Musk turns the page in on his own on-off relationship again to the on position with the crypto coin. Biden to Brussels, the president getting ready for his face-to-face with Russian President Vladimir Putin. We are on the ground with a live report. SPAC in action, how billionaire businessman Richard Branson is going back for seconds when it comes to tapping the public equity markets and putting a price tag on the final frontier and a seat on the next Brothers Bezos on their trip into space. The winning bid ahead on this Monday, June 14th, 2021. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan on this Monday. And here's how stock futures are setting their Monday morning up. You can see we're poised for modest gains at the opening bell. The Dow implied higher by roughly 20 points. The S&P higher by about four points and the Nasdaq by just about 31. The S&P 500 is coming off a record close on Friday and its third straight week of gains. The Nasdaq is now up four weeks in a row for the first time since January. Small cap stocks as well, as measured by the Russell 2000, other indices out there that track them in ETFs, also up three weeks in a row. Meanwhile, Treasuries are holding steady, though still below the key 1.5% level for the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury note. Right now, 1.46% the last trade there. The two-year Treasury note yield just a hair above 15 basis points, or 0.15%. Now to your morning crypto check. We mentioned Bitcoin in the opening there. You can see right now just about 4% gains for Bitcoin, currently 39,083 at least according to Coinbase, also Ripple, Ethereum, Litecoin higher in the morning trade as well. Much more on Bitcoin's weekend action coming up later on in the show. Also keep a close eye on crude oil, up for three straight weeks, still trading at its highest levels since October of 2018. Right now we're seeing 1% gains for U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate crude. The last trade there, $71.60. Again, 1% upside there. And lumber prices as well, hitting their lowest level since April, down 13% over the last week and down three weeks in a row. A lot of people hoping that trend continues, especially if you're a home builder right now or somebody looking for home renovations. Well, a busy week ahead now, the big event, the Federal Reserve kicking off a two-day policy meeting starting tomorrow. Chairman Jay Powell will wrap things up with a news conference on Wednesday afternoon. Also worth watching in the, in the days ahead, we have new inflation data at the producer level and retail sales data as well as you can see a busy week for earnings and for economic data. 
Joining me now is Silvercrest Asset Management's Robert Teeter. Robert, given what we know right now about the markets, the context that we're seeing, record highs, interest rates falling, inflation concerns still part of the mix, do you feel as though you are getting more comfortable with the markets despite many of those warning signs that we're seeing? Yeah, it's a great question, and good morning, Dom. I think there are a lot of warning signs. Certainly, inflation is the the biggest of them. Um, What we've found really interesting is as inflation readings have moved higher from 2% to about 5% in recent months, the bond market has actually steadied, and as you noted, yields have come down. That's sometimes a bit perplexing. We wouldn't expect that reaction naturally. Um, But I think there's a few things the bond market is looking to that encourage us with regard to the fact that inflation might be peaking here. So ratings might stay a little bit elevated, um, but we think they're going to cool down. You see some of the front end prices starting to slow down a bit, things like lumber. And then lastly, I would say we found that you don't want to underestimate the supply side of this economy. It's shown itself able to really dramatically and dynamically expand supply on short notice and solve a lot of problems. And we think that's the process that's going on now. That You know, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's been something I've been paying attention to as well. We've been talking about this idea that that supply chain issues could be kind of pushing prices higher and it could be even a medium to longer term phenomenon. I, I don't know if the pandemic is the perfect example, because, yes, we rallied as a country to produce things like hand sanitizer and wipes and everything else and PPE. But it seems to me as though we're, when there's a will, there's a way, Robert. Right. When people focus on these things, the supply chain issues will get cleared up. How long do you think it takes? I think that's right. And I, I see things the same way. I think it's going to be a little bit different for each type of pricing. You know, we've seen uh, lumber prices come down pretty dramatically in the last few weeks. Other areas, it may take a little bit more time. We heard some of the automakers talking about starting to solve problems with the chip shortages. Uh, that may also take a little bit of time. But we think it's going to get the job done. So we, we, our expectation is that CPI readings remain elevated, but perhaps the prior reading or the next one may be the peak. Uh, And you'll start to see that second derivative come down a bit. I think folks will get a bit more comfort there. And as we work through some of the hotter summer months into the fall and winter, uh, we think just as the temperatures cool, some of the prices will as well. All right. So if those temperatures are cooling, the prices are cooling down. Are there specific parts of the market that are poised to do better in that kind of an environment? I think so. I think the easiest thing here is to sort of get off the inflation roller coaster and really follow earnings higher. Uh, The real hidden gem in this market has been the fact that earnings have been spectacular. Uh, We're unsurprised by that given the COVID cycle. But even when you rewind the clock back to 2019, earnings are up, you know, 10 to 15 percent above where they were in 2019, the last normal year that we had. And expectations are that that will continue into 2022 as well. Uh, So I think there are a lot of areas to like, both on the organic growth side and the cyclical side. So some of the technology space, small caps, uh, some of the industrials area, all of those are places where we think you can find good opportunity to follow the earnings. All right. So technology also looking for that earnings story to continue. Robert Teeter at Silvercrest, thank you very much. Have a good morning, sir. Thank you. All right. Let's get to some of this morning's other top stories. Bertha Coombs is here with those headlines. Good Monday morning, Bertha. Hey, good morning, Dom. You know, you were talking about crypto just a few minutes ago. Bitcoin bouncing back near that $40,000 level once again after Elon Musk said that he would consider accepting Bitcoin once again at Tesla dealerships. His main caveat, Musk wants, quote, 
confirmation of reasonable, about 50%, clean energy usage by miners with positive future trend. Tesla halted car purchases with Bitcoin in May, citing concerns over the climate impact of cryptocurrency mining. Meantime, Virgin Orbit, the satellite launching spinoff of Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, reportedly in advanced discussions to go public at about a $3 billion valuation through a SPAC led by former Goldman Sachs partner George Matson. Sources close to the matter tell CNBC a deal is expected to be announced in the coming weeks, though Virgin Orbit declined a request for comment. And Apple will reportedly drop mask requirements at a number of its retail stores and offices as soon as tomorrow. According to Bloomberg, the company has already informed employees of the change in the policy. While customers won't have to wear masks or prove vaccination status, retail employees will still be required to wear a mask. So it's kind of a hybrid approach, Dom. Yeah, I think hybrid is probably the, the buzzword that we've seen so much during the virus pandemic, Bertha. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. We'll see you later on. When we come back on the show, we are live in Brussels, where President Biden is preparing for his highly anticipated face-to-face with Russia's Vladimir Putin. Our own Eamon Javers has the report there. Plus, why hackers and cyber thieves are swearing off Bitcoin for another more covert and more autonomous crypto coin. And later on, history at Westminster and this year's best in show. Yes, I'm a dog person, you can tell. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Welcome back. President Biden is wrapping up his trip to the G7 summit and shifting gears as he is in Brussels to meet with NATO allies and a face-to-face with Russian President Vladimir Putin as well later on. Our own Eamon Javers is on the ground in Geneva and joins us now. Eamon, good morning to you. Yeah, good morning to you, Dom. The president is in Brussels this morning. He spent the weekend, though, in the U.K. with the G7, where they took that family photo of all the world leaders. And this event was as much about who wasn't there as who was there. Very much of this addressed to China and Russia, obviously not part of the G7, not attending over the weekend. And a lot of it was about the absence of former President Donald Trump and the reemergence of the United States on the global stage. The G7 communique that wrapped up the event came up with a couple of deliverables, and you can see what they were addressed at uh, as you look at the the items that they agreed on. First of all, providing uh, 870 million vaccine doses directly over the next year to poorer countries. They 
endorsed a global minimum tax. They called on all states to urgently identify and disrupt ransomware and criminal networks. They called on China to respect human rights, fundamental freedoms and autonomy for Hong Kong. And they also reaffirmed their call on Russia to stop its destabilizing behavior and malign activities, including what they said was interference in other countries' democratic systems. It was that minimum tax, though, that attracted President Biden's attention, and he suggested that he might pursue something similar at home. Take a listen. So many corporations have been engaged in what are essentially tax havens, uh, uh, deciding that they would pay considerably less in other, in, in other environs around the world. And, but this is going to make sure there's a minimum tax, and I'm going, to have, I'm going to move on this at home as well, minimum tax for corporations to pay for the profits they make anywhere in the world. And the president made an oblique reference to the absence of his predecessor, Donald Trump, as a lot of the countries at the G7 were reacting to the new emergence on the global stage of the United States of America. Here's what President Biden had to say on that front. The lack uh, of uh, participation in the past and, and full engagement um, was noticed significantly, not only by the leaders of those countries, but by the people in the G7 countries. And uh, America's back in the business of uh, leading the world alongside nations who share our most deeply held values. So, Dom, the weekend was spent on diplomacy with the G7 nations. Now we're going to be focused on NATO as the president is in Brussels and focusing on the military alliance here with the European countries. Uh, and then it's here to Geneva where the president is going to meet with Vladimir Putin. And I can tell you the security situation is ramping up here in Geneva. The excitement level among some of the people we've talked to here in Geneva is ramping up as well. So a lot of anticipation about that event. Will the president be able to get the U.S.-Russia relationship back on track on Wednesday? That's very much the focus of this week here, Don. Back All right, over to so, you. so, 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 Eamon, please tell us the expectations for that face-to-face with Russian President Vladimir Putin juxtaposed next to a NATO meeting against a Warsaw Pact that doesn't exist, but Russia still does. This is all very interesting with regard to the U.S.-Russia relationship. Yeah, so much at stake here in this negotiation, Don. This is going to be the first meeting between the two men with Biden in the presidency. Uh, They've met before, before Biden was president of the United States, but this is as high stakes as it gets. The president is really going to be focused on the ransomware attacks and Russia's role in those and also uh, Russia's military aggressiveness uh, around the world, particularly in Ukraine. And the question is going to be, uh, can the president get any deliverables from that? The expectations, I've got to say, Dom, are fairly low for all of this. Uh, The idea idea is just to send a forceful message uh, and kind of see what happens here uh, between the United States uh, and Russia. One thing to watch for, though, is there's not going to be that joint press conference that we've seen in the past at summits like this. The president has said uh, he doesn't want to engage in that with Vladimir Putin because he knows that people are going to be analyzing the body language and counting the seconds of who talked and who didn't talk, how tough was the handshake, all that physical stuff. The president says he just simply doesn't want to engage in that, and so they're not going to have that done. All right. I'm sure you'll keep on top of that story for us. Eamon Javers live in Geneva, Switzerland. Thank you very much. Still on deck for the show, the price tag for a seat next to the Brothers Bezos on their maiden voyage to infinity and beyond. Your top trending stories. That's coming up after this break. Today's big number, $136.9 trillion. That was the total U.S. household net worth at the end of the first quarter, according to data from the Federal Reserve. 
That's a 3.8% increase from the end of 2020. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. It is expected somewhat that a business will fall victim to a ransomware attack every 11 seconds in 2021. That's according to one report. And for years, Bitcoin has been the currency of choice for virtually all ransom payments because it isn't controlled by a central bank or a government entity. Think the recent JBS or Colonial Pipeline attacks. But hackers are now starting to request less traceable, even less traceable, more anonymous Bitcoin alternatives. CNBC technology reporter Mackenzie Sagalas joins us now with the latest on this new twist. And Mackenzie, good morning. Why are cyber criminals now ditching Bitcoin? It was such a popular, popular mode of transferring value for the last several years. Good morning, Dom. So one of the core features of Bitcoin is that its public ledger, which stores all token transactions in its history, is visible to everyone. So this is why the savvier hackers are turning to Monero, which has additional anonymity built into it. Monero is considered a privacy token, which means that it hides virtually all transaction details, which allows cyber criminals greater freedom from some of the tracking tools that authorities have developed to trace payments on Bitcoin's blockchain. Now, okay, so we're looking at this Monero, anonymous crypto coin. It has a lot of features that protect kind of the uh, the identity anonymity. Does it mean now that we're at a tipping point for Monero? I follow cryptocurrencies somewhat. I'm not a crypto enthusiast, but I've never really even heard of Monero. Is this about to take on the ransomware side of things a little bit more? Are they going to request criminals Monero instead of Bitcoin because of these? I just don't feel as though it's got the same kind of brand awareness that many of these other cryptocurrencies do. I spoke to Digital Mint, a company that helps corporate victims pay ransoms in cryptocurrency. And they told me that 90 to 95% of ransoms are paid in Bitcoin, but Monero is an increasingly popular option. That said, there are a few big limitations when it comes to dealing in Monero. For one, it's not as liquid as other cryptocurrencies, in part because many regulated exchanges have chosen not to list it due to regulatory concerns. So in practice, that means that it can be harder for hackers to cash out their Monero to U.S. dollars. Now, okay, so so if there's not a lot of liquidity and it's not as well used, what exactly then does get Monero to to that next level, to, to the level that, say, maybe some of the altcoins are at and eventually what's happening with with Bitcoin? It just all comes back to its public ledger, its blockchain that underpins Monero, and the fact that it's very difficult to see who the sender is, who the recipient is, what the transaction amount is. And I think that a lot of cyber criminals are banking on the fact that those on and off ramps that connect fiat cash with like the digital token 
will get better and there will be more ways to uh, liquidate their uh, digital token stake, if you will. And I think that that's why we're seeing things trending in that direction. All right, Mackenzie, I, I, I understand that you are heading to Miami later on this week. Apparently, that city is increasingly becoming synonymous with all things Bitcoin. Of course, they just had that massive conference over the last week or so. Uh, what exactly is driving a lot of this action towards Miami and cryptocurrency? Yeah, so a lot of people I've spoken with say that they're super bullish on Florida and they're bearish on cities like New York and San Francisco. So you have crypto startups, venture firms, digital currency exchanges that are all relocating to Miami en masse. And some are calling it the, quote, Miami migration. And it has a lot to do with Mayor Francis Suarez, who has portrayed himself as Bitcoin friendly. He announced in February that Miami plans to accept tax payments in Bitcoin and the city wants to let employees draw their salary in the cryptocurrency as well. The city of Miami also exploring holding Bitcoin on its balance sheet, which I definitely plan to ask Mayor Suarez about when I interview him in Miami later this week. All right. It's certainly a, a, a tropical place for all those crypto enthusiasts as well. Thank you very much, Mackenzie Sigalos, yeah. and have a nice trip in Miami. And be sure, be sure, folks, to check Thanks, out our column Tom. right now for Monero on CNBC.com right now. I've learned a lot about it. I didn't know what Monero was, but it's certainly an eye-opening piece there just about what kinds of things are happening in the crypto industry. Well, let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the latest. Good Monday morning, Francis. Hey, Dom. Good morning to you. Yeah, we start with a violent weekend across the country. A manhunt is on in Savannah, Georgia, for one or more suspects after a Friday night shooting left one person dead and eight others wounded. And there's a tragic update to the shooting that took place in downtown Austin early Saturday morning. A 25-year-old man has now died from his injuries. Police say one suspect is in custody, but a search continues for a second. In Chicago, at least three people were killed and 36 injured in shootings across the city. Police are still searching for two men who opened fire at a group of people standing in a parking lot overnight on Saturday. A 29-year-old woman was killed and nine others were wounded. It's a new week and a new era for Israel. For the first time in more than a decade, Israel has a new prime minister. Right-wing leader Naftali Bennett took the reins from Benjamin Netanyahu yesterday, ending his 12-year run as the country's leader. A three-year-old male Pekingese has claimed the top dog at the show at the uh, world's most coveted prize here. Wasabi beat out some 2,500 other champions to be crowned best in show at this year's Westminster Dog Show. He also won the American Kennel Club National Championship in 2019. A hard-fought final at Roland Garros brought Novak Djokovic one step closer to history. Djokovic was down two sets to Stefano Tsitsipas. That sent the Serbian into a tear down in the stretch, putting on an improbable comeback to win the French Open in five sets. Djokovic claimed his second French Open title and 19th Grand Slam, one away in tying Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal for the most in men's history. And before leaving the court, Djokovic gifted his championship racket to a young fan who just went nuts, probably still is going nuts over getting that racket after that win. Um, I mean, the, the last maybe five, seven years have been a golden age for the world of tennis, for sure, Francis Rivera. I mean, I don't know if you're a tennis fan, but it's certainly fun to watch. It sure is, especially with everything in friendship that has been going on back and forth, who's in and who's out. And now we know. Big personalities for sure. <laughs> Francis Rivera, thank you very much for that. Uh, still ahead on the show, Amazon unveils its newest warehouse workers straight from Sesame Street. Yeah, Sesame Street. We'll explain after this. And the CNBC Evolved Global Summit is coming up this week, gathering leaders and innovators from around the world for 
provocative conversations and to share some of their strategies and tactics that are necessary for adapting, innovating, and transforming in this very new era of business. Featured speakers include CEOs from Pfizer, the IMF, UPS, and many more. You can learn more and register now at cnbcevents.com slash evolve. We'll be right back. Fed in focus. Investors turning their attention to the central bank's latest high-profile policy meeting, seeking fresh fuel to propel stocks possibly even higher. President Biden hitting the reset button with fellow world leaders taking aim at China, Russia, climate change, and more in his first G7 meeting. And saying so long to your job. New numbers on the growing trend of people quitting, creating new hurdles for employers amid the return to office trends. It's Monday, June 14th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan. And here is how stock futures are looking halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour on this Monday morning. You can see we're poised for modest gains again at this opening bell. The Dow implied higher by just 14 points. The S&P by about three points and the Nasdaq higher implied at the opening bell by roughly 30. Now, the S&P 500 is coming off a record close. It's third straight week of gains. The Nasdaq is now up four weeks in a row for the first time since January. Also, the small cap Russell 2000 index up three weeks in a row, showing some gains there, trying to play catch up with the rest of the record breaking parts of the market. Right now, you can see bonds also in focus. Stability is the name of the game this morning. Ten-year benchmark U.S. Treasury note yields currently just a hair around above 1.46%. Meanwhile, two-year Treasury note yields a hair above 15 basis points, or 0.15%. Now to some of your morning's top stories. Bertha Coombs is back with those. Good morning, Bertha. Hey, good morning, Dom. So employers in the U.S. are facing a new reopening challenge with the surge in people quitting. The Wall Street Journal highlighting over the weekend that more U.S. workers have quit their jobs than at any time in the last two decades. The journal citing several factors for the turnover, including people foregoing a return to the normal office lifestyle, with others becoming burned out from extra workloads and stress. Royal Dutch Shell, meantime, is mulling the sale of its largest oil field in the U.S. According to reports, the sale could be for part or all of the company's 260,000 acres in the Permian Basin and could go for up to $10 billion. Shell reportedly weighing the move in a bid to focus on its most profitable oil and gas assets and grow its low-carbon investments. And mall owner Washington Prime has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, citing the impact of the pandemic. The company was spun off off from Simon Property Group, the nation's largest mall owner, in 2014 and has more than 100 shopping centers. It should be noted, Washington Prime only has a market cap of about $120 million. Experts have warned the pandemic may hasten the closure of underperforming malls. 
this was something that was already underway before the pandemic, Dom. So this is just extending that trend, it seems. Absolutely, Bertha. It's, it's like a tale of two cities with regard to real estate these days, the very, very hot and the very, very not. Bertha, thank you very much for that. Well, President Biden is in Brussels this morning preparing to meet with fellow NATO leaders as his first overseas trip continues. The president wrapped up his meeting with G7 leaders just yesterday, calling on his counterparts to take action on China, climate change, the virus pandemic and more. For more on the president's first trip overseas and what investors need to watch, I'm now joined by Andy Blocker, Invesco's head of U.S. government affairs. So, so Andy, from your perspective, you, you look at this through an investor's eyes, through a policymaker's eyes, through even Main Street's eyes. What exactly should we be taking away from President Biden's first trip, first of all, to the G7 and now to NATO? Don, great to be back with you. Um, look, this trip is all about reaffirming alliances, number one, and number two, restoring trust and democracy with China looming in the background. On the, on the positive side for President Biden, even before arriving in Europe, he'd already done a lot in this respect by, one, showing that the U.S. can take care of business at home with how he's handled COVID-19, and two, delivering a consistent message that the U.S. is back on the international stage. And what has this led to? is led to a turnaround in how America is viewed abroad. At the end of the Trump presidency, only about 17% had confidence in the U.S., while now, during the Biden presidency, over 75% have confidence. And the big question coming into this trip was, what concrete agreements could President Biden deliver on to sh beyond goodwill to show that Democratic states could still come together to tackle the world's problems? And you mentioned the issues, and I think they've gone a long way towards that. So, so Andy, we're showing some of the, the kind of glamour shots and the photo opportunities that we've seen during the G7. Boris Johnson of the U.K. kind of elbow bumping President Biden. I mean, this all seems fine and dandy and touchy feely. But are there any any real things that can be taken away? Is this really going to be constructive enough or things the dialogue constructive enough to to lead to any kind of economic impact whatsoever for those G7 countries? And of course, their relationship with places like China. It is the largest trading partner for many of these countries around the world. So I think you make a very good point. What's just show and what's reality as far as the economy is concerned? I don't want us to underestimate the impact of the 870 million doses of, for COVID-19 vaccines that are going to be distributed around the world because COVID-19 and dealing with that, um, having a good recovery after dealing with that is still the key economic issue. And so first it's the U.S. continue on its path, then Europe, but then the rest of the world. So I think that's a long-term play and that's important. I think challenging Russia on ransomware and cybersecurity. And also, this is the strongest statements that have been made with respect to China. It didn't go as far as what President Biden and the U.S. wanted to, but on human rights and other issues, they were very direct. So, so Andy, folks, uh, you know, will, will be across the political spectrum, our viewers included. I mean, you can say what you will about President Trump, but there was very decisive and very perhaps provocative action that was taken by the Trump administration to handle our relationship with China. You can't doubt that. You can't dispute it. What exactly then is the Biden administration looking to do with regard to these meetings and the U.S.'s position on China? It is viewed by many as perhaps the kind of main relationship to focus on in the global economy for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Well, Don, I think you made an excellent point. I agree with you wholeheartedly. The key is what's the difference. Now, here's what's the same. What people like to say is that with President Trump going after China, 
He essentially crossed the Rubicon with China, and we're not going back. Remember, 73% of the American people have a not, don't have a favorable view of China. And so we're not going back to the lovey-dovey relationship with China that we had before. It's we're competitors and we're adversaries. And so I don't think that's changed at all. I think the method is what's changing. And I think what President Biden's administration is trying to do is to say, okay, we tried the bilateral mono-a-mono approach. Let's do multilateral. Let's get our uh, all of our allies with us as we go at China, which they've started that process with G7, not as far as they wanted to, as I said before. But that's the key. It's about the approach, not the actual um, bent towards China. All right. There's a lot on the agenda for sure. Andy Blocker and Vesco, thank you very much for your insights. We appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up on the show, heading to the heavens with Jeff Bezos for just a few million dollars. The high price someone paid for the space ride with the Amazon CEO and your other top headlines this morning coming up. But first, as we head out to break, some of your top stories. Japan reportedly set to launch an antitrust probe into Apple and Google over their deals with Japanese smartphone makers. This is according to a report in Nikkei. The move comes ahead of a Senate antitrust hearing this week featuring, yes, Google and then Amazon. Well, speaking of Amazon, the company unveiling new details of the warehouse robots it's testing to improve worker safety. Dubbed Ernie and Bert, hence the Sesame Street kind of tip, hat tip there. The robots are being tested with the hopes of reducing strenuous movements for workers. And the ongoing global shipping crisis forcing Home Depot to pull the trigger on buying its own shipping vessel. The company's chief operating officer revealing the move in an interview. New as companies try to grapple with the supply chain constraints everyone's dealing with around the world. Home Depot shares just about flat in the pre-market trade. We are back after this. All right. Shouldn't companies have to disclose their climate risk? That question is front and center this morning after the SEC wrapped up its public comment period on the issue. So what could potential changes mean for both corporations and investors? Diana Olick joins us more with that story. Good morning, Diana. Good morning, Dom. Yeah, the comments are in. The Business Roundtable is expressing support for a specific requirement that companies disclose their greenhouse gas emissions annually. And from BlackRock, it is our conviction that integrating assessment of climate-related considerations into our investment process will result in better long-term risk-adjusted returns for our climate clients. But climate risk is already a priority in corporate America. Firms like the Climate Service are running in-depth, complex climate scenarios for some of the largest corporations in the world. They look at physical risk like floods, hurricanes, wildfires and extreme temperatures. But they also assess transition risk. That is, as the world changes to a lower carbon economy, how will those changes hit operations and supply chain? Really interesting evolution of the climate change conversation in corporate America over the last 24 months, I would say. So it's moved from climate risk understanding is a nice to have to a need to have. It's now seen as a business critical risk to be measured and managed. Lake says the largest growth in demand is from financial services and then, of course, real estate, tech, food and beverage and energy firms. While companies are not yet forced to disclose climate risk, some of their largest investors, like CalPERS, are now demanding it. You have to look at the risk management tools and then you have to look at the metrics and the measurements associated. And through our company engagement, we want companies to disclose and be transparent with us. 
And even in a recent public filing for its IPO, Krispy Kreme listed climate under its risk factors, saying adverse weather conditions, including as a result of climate change, could adversely affect our business. Now, the biggest hurdle, of course, is how to create a standard for climate risk, how to qualify and quantify it. And that is a big hurdle, Dom. It's a big hurdle, Diana. But but I mean, there has been so much ground that has been made by some of these companies with regard to their awareness of it, their disclosure of things, the transparency picture overall. What exactly then kind of moves this to the next chapter? How, how do those kind of talks and how do those conversations and how do those talking points become actions with regard to how they actually tackle some of their business policies, if at all, Diana? Well, that's what the comment period for the SEC is about. And then the SEC has to decide how they are going to enforce some sort of qualifier, some sort of, you know, rules that would make companies have to disclose and not just disclose, but to qualify and quantify. Again, look at what their climate risk is. Look at some kind of standard for gauging that risk and then somehow disclose that in a standard format so that as investors are looking at these companies and government is looking at these companies, they can assess that climate risk along that same standard. And then, of course, that would have ramifications on how people are investing, like CalPERS, as she said. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating because there's a, obviously right now, Diana, a huge debate about whether or not government should even be involved in that sort of thing with regard to certain companies. But a big comment period for sure for the SEC. Thank you very much, Diana. We appreciate it. Well, a Wendy's across the pond, old American cars and some very expensive 11 minutes. Bertha Coombs is here with today's top trending stories. Bertha, some of these, I mean, it's pretty amazing the price tag on space, but I know you're going to get there. We're going to get there. Let's start off with Wendy's. They've opened, uh, Wendy's has opened its first location in the UK in 20 years. The fast food chain had shut down its British locations in 2001, citing high operating costs. Customers queued up for the restaurant, which is now open in Reading and features some UK exclusives on the menu, including a veggie burger and an avocado salad. The average age of vehicles in the U.S. has risen to a record 12.1 years, an all-time high. The new data coming from IHS Market. It's an increase compared to 2019 when Americans held onto their cars for an average of 11.8 years. The report cites that record age is largely due to Americans driving fewer miles uh, during the pandemic. And one very special spacegoer has won the auction to join Jeff Bezos and his brother on their first Blue Origin trip to space. Almost 7,900 people bid for the spot, with the winner paying more than $28 million for the 11-minute space trip. The winner, who is anonymous, will also have to pay a 6% buyer's commission, bringing the total cost to almost $30 million. I guess it's an auction, so you have to pay that commission as well. But I don't know. 11 minutes for $30 million. I'm wondering if they're going to pitch Jeff Bezos on some new business while they're doing it. I mean, it could be. I guess the fascinating part to me is whether or not you see this kind of talk expand beyond just the multi, multi-billionaires or millionaires out there who can afford millions and millions of dollars for these flights? Is there going to be a democratization of space travel? I'm sure it's going to take years to bring costs down to that kind of level, right, Bertha? 
Well, similar to cars, right? Initially, it was really only the very wealthy who could afford cars, although we're sort of returning to that again with the prices of cars uh, inflating so quickly, especially with used cars. But uh, eventually, I've got to imagine it will come down to, you know, us, us simple folk. Well, Bertha, as, as, as a guy who owns currently a 16-year-old vehicle with about 220,000 miles on it. I, I kind of know the right feeling. Right there with you. They, uh, yes, exactly. I, I just kind of, and, and maybe it's more just the sentimental value that I have with my car. I love, I love cars, so I don't know what to say about that. Anyway, Bertha Coombs, thank you very much for those trending stories. We appreciate it. On deck for the show, stocks looking to break into fresh record territory. Fairlead Strategies, Katie Stockton lays out what will help fuel that new momentum and she's watching certain names that are maybe breaking out. And by the way, if you have not already done so, please subscribe to our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange in audio format, we have it. That way, check us out on all the major podcast platforms. And of course, June is Pride Month. All month long, we'll be spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders, many of our own CNBC colleagues. Here is Pfizer's Chief Corporate Affairs Officer, Sally Sussman. Much to my amazement, being a gay woman has actually been an asset to me in business. I had to make a decision early on whether or not to come out. And once I came out, I felt clear, courageous, bold, brave, and able to make really authentic relationships that have served me well in business and in life. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. What you're seeing there is the rough calendar for the catalyst that we could have in the market in the week ahead. On Tuesday, we start the two-day Federal Reserve meeting. Very closely watched. We get some retail sales data, wholesale inflation numbers as well, and earnings from Oracle and Lazy Boy. Then housing data and also housing earnings from Lennar on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, of course, weekly jobless claims, the Philly Fed Index, and earnings from Adobe and Kroger as well. So a good amount of catalysts on both the macro and microeconomic front coming up in Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday's trade. Well, while no one is expecting fireworks from the Fed at the meeting, it could still be a pivotal moment for the stock market with the S&P 500 at a record high and the Dow and NASDAQ not so far away from their own. Let's bring in Katie Stockton, founder and managing partner at Fairlead Strategies for this. Katie, I just got to ask the simple question first. I mean, can the stock market just keep going higher? It seems like it just doesn't want to go down. Well, I think we can see it go higher, especially if sentiment remains complacent. And I think that's really the key here because the market has strong momentum right now to the upside. And we did see the S&P 500 clear its final resistance from May. That breakout was confirmed on Friday. And we don't like to fight breakouts in this tape. So even if it doesn't really necessarily make sense from a fundamental perspective, the momentum is still there behind the market. So the breakout that we saw by the S&P 500 targets about 44.40 with an intermediate term time horizon. And that dictates more offensive positioning, especially if we see measures of sentiment show that complacency is here to stay. And for one, I'm watching the VIX. If the VIX were to take out that April low, which was 1538 decisively, that would be an indication that we're going to see a new lower floor for the VIX. And the VIX holds an inverse correlation to the S&P 500. So I think that'll be key. 
I mean, we're showing a chart, Katie, right now of the VIX. I, you, you look at charts for a living here. It, I mean, we've seen the spikes. We know why they were there. We, we talk about things like COVID. We talk about certain economic shocks that we were expecting to kind of see stock market volatility elevate. But, but if you are in this low volatility environment and you're saying it could go even lower if we go below a certain level around the 15 handle or so on the VIX, then what exactly does low volatility even look like? What can we expect to see in the VIX or the stock market overall if we take out some of those support levels for volatility that you've been saying? The new floor for the VIX is at the 2019 low. So it wasn't really that long ago that we had this so-called low volatility regime or cycle, and that floor was around 11. So, of course, that would suggest that the equity market can forge higher And indeed, we have seen some consolidation really in in some areas since February in the growthier areas of the market. We saw a pretty significant correction off of February's highs. And some of those same stocks just in the last two or three weeks have actually broken out above minor resistance levels, things like their 50-day moving averages. So that relief rally is seemingly becoming something maybe a bit more. It doesn't mean these stocks will have an easy go at getting to new highs again this year. I think they will have some challenges in that regard because now there's a lot of resistance left in the wake of that down move. But it shows that there was an underlying correction in the broader market that really didn't manifest itself in measures like the S&P 500. That rotational correction can be something that can help refresh an uptrend. All right. So let's talk hypothetically. If those assumptions play out and we do have that kind of medium to longer term bullish uptrend that you've been talking about right now, that implies that there are certain areas where people are going to look in terms of traders and investors for outperformance, the alpha, so to speak. It's easy to own the overall S&P 500 if we know that over the longer term it's just going to modestly go higher. But are there places that you can find value in a market that's at record highs if you're looking to find that way to outperform the index? If the breakout that we have in the S&P 500 is real and if it carries over to the NASDAQ 100 and the Russell 2000, I think the initial phase of outperformance will come from the higher growth regime. It doesn't mean that that will be a lasting phase of outperformance, but because those areas of the market had already corrected and we're talking about things like clean energy and, uh, you know, the the 5G space, these names that had really, really pulled back, those will probably catch more of a bid here near term. However, then beyond the near term, you would expect to see rotation back into the cyclical sectors. We have big breakouts, of course, in the energy space. Materials, industrials continue to hold positive relative strength, albeit maybe a little bit extended here in the short term. So I think we'll see more of that happen. At the same time, I think we will see participation, if not maybe also outperformance from the heavyweights in the market. And that's the likes of Apple and Amazon, both of which held their 200-day moving averages. Those levels acted as support. And I see that as an incremental positive for the major indices. Katie, we've just got about a little less than a minute left to go here. Are, Are there certain names that you are seeing as possible breakouts given the chart patterns that you're watching? Well, we'd already seen a lot of breakouts from a bottom-up perspective, names like Ford. We saw a minor breakout in GE. We had a breakout in NVIDIA and Juniper. Those breakouts have 
largely run their course. But I think the point is that they did see upside follow through when they cleared those initial resistance levels. And the more that we see the same action from a bottom-up perspective, I think we can trust those breakouts and act on them. I did highlight to clients last week Tesla, not as a breakout, uh, but as a stock that's rising from an intermediate-term oversold condition and now, of course, has better short-term momentum. So the more that we see that, and I believe Tesla and others like it are still in long-term uptrend. So the phase of underperformance in that down move since that February high, they did not damage the long-term trends, but of course they did damage some portfolios. I do think we'll see a comeback in the likes of Tesla. All right, Katie Stockton with the call there on Tesla and others as well. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Have a nice day. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage. Coming up next, we are at record highs for the S&P 500. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.